Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. In December 2013, I traveled to Canada to find Maura Murray. This is that young woman from UMass who disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the subject of my book, True Crime Addict. Ever since Maura vanished in 2004, there have been rumors that she ran away to start a new life in Canada. These rumors took on a new life in April 2009 when a person using the handle Tourist in Canada posted the following story on a topics message board. I saw Maura Murray alive and well in Sherbrooke, Quebec. I approached her and said, Hi, Maura. She turned toward me and said, Hi, then gasped and looked like she was going to pass out from shock. I have no doubt this was Maura Murray. She is apparently alive and well and living in Canada. When I saw her, she was with a very handsome young man. Was it a real lead? or just an online troll trying to drum up drama. Well, if you consider the events leading up to her disappearance, you'll find plenty of motivation for Mora to want to start over somewhere new. She'd been forced to leave West Point after getting caught stealing from the commissary at Fort Knox. She got in trouble for credit card fraud and identity theft at UMass. She wasn't on speaking terms with her mother. Her father was a control freak, and her long-term boyfriend like to hit women. So, I could understand her urge to head for the Great White North and become someone new. But I wanted to know for sure. So back in 2013, I traveled into Canada in search of Mora with the guys from the Missing Mora Murray podcast, Lance Reensterna and Tim Polari. Our journey began in Sherbrooke, but eventually took us into Quebec City on a day when the wind chill reached negative 20 degrees where we met a record store clerk who could only speak French, but whose message was clear. Maura Murray was alive and well. Is it really possible? Is it possible to walk away from your life and start a new one in this day of surveillance and social media? How is it done? Is it legal? 
Has anyone managed to get away with it? And if so, where can I sign up? This is the philosophy of crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Not all those who wander are lost. Do you ever get the urge to walk away from who you are? I think most of us fantasize about it at some point. It's a romantic notion, the thought that we could leave all of our problems behind and light out for the territories and become someone altogether different. I came very close to doing it when I was 15. I had a difficult childhood. Who didn't, right? I was a profoundly unhappy teenager, and I got it into my head that I might start walking to Philadelphia and never look back. Why Philadelphia? I, I don't know. I'd never been there before, and it was something like 300 miles away, but the city pulled at me with the promise that things would be better there, and that I could be someone new. This was no idle dream. I was dead serious. I even packed, got my shoes on, headed out the door. My father wasn't home and wouldn't be until dark, and I'd have a hell of a head start on him. I'd told nobody of my plans, but a cute girl was kind to me at school that day. And that provided just a sliver of hope that things might be better. And so I stayed to see if that was true. And it was. It was, but not for many years. How close did you get? Somewhere out there right now, people are living under fake names, pretending to be someone they are not, hiding in plain sight, living beside us, whether by choice 
or circumstance. Not long ago, it was relatively easy to become someone new. Not content with your wife and kids? Just run out for a pack of smokes and never look back. Nowadays, we have social security numbers, fingerprints, DNA, social media, phones with GPS tracking apps, facial recognition software, and yet, some people still find a way. It's hard to know for sure just how many people have pulled it off, because we only hear about the ones who fail. People like John List. Trigger warning, this case is fucked up. John List was a nerd who never quite got out from under his mother's shadow. He was an evangelical Lutheran, a Sunday school teacher from Michigan. He enlisted in World War II in 1943, and the Army made him a lab technician. After the war, he got a degree in accounting, and then married the widow of a man killed in the Korean War. He bounced around the country taking accounting jobs that never lasted long before working at a bank in New Jersey. He bought a Victorian mansion for his growing family in the quiet suburb of Westfield. When he lost his job at the bank, the dude kind of went crazy. First of all, he didn't tell his wife. He left the house in the morning just like always, but spent his days at the train station reading newspapers and waiting until it was time to return home. He stole from his mother's bank account to pay his mortgage. Then, on November 9th, 1971, after his kids went to school, John took out the guns he stored at home, a 9mm semi-automatic and his father's old 22. He shot his wife in the back of her head. Then he went upstairs where his mother lived and shot her once, just above her left eye. When his 16-year-old daughter Patricia came home later that day, he shot her too. He did the same to his 13-year-old son, Fred. Then he made himself a late lunch. He drove to the bank and emptied out his bank accounts. He canceled mail service to the house and milk delivery. Then he stopped by Westfield High School, where his oldest son, John Jr., was playing in a soccer game. He drove him home afterwards and then shot John Jr. too. But the boy fought back, angering his father. So John shot him ten times. He put his dead children on top of sleeping bags and dragged them into the ballroom. Then he turned the temperature down so that the cold would preserve their bodies. Finally, he wrote a note to his pastor in which he confessed to the murders, explaining he had to kill them to save their souls. Patricia had been talking about becoming an actress in Hollywood, for God's sake. The bodies were not discovered for an entire week. By then, John List had a hell of a head start on the police. He remained free for 18 years. Then, in May 1989, America's Most Wanted aired an episode about the murders, and several viewers called into the show, claiming John List looked a lot like their neighbor, Bob Clark, a nerdy accountant living outside Richmond, Virginia. It's hard to tell how much of John's past his new wife was aware of, but one family friend told the LA Times that they had once showed Dolores an article about the List family murders in a tabloid newspaper. The friend asked Dolores if she thought John looked like her husband, Bob. Dolores went white, but said it couldn't be her husband. Days after the America's Most Wanted episode aired, John was finally arrested and the police uncovered the rest of his story. When he fled New Jersey in 1971, John had assumed the identity of a man he knew in college. He used a fake social security number to get work. He dyed his hair to change his appearance. 
But the one thing he couldn't change was his fingerprints, which police matched to an old army record. And John was only one of the fugitives on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. The other nine are still out there somewhere. Think about that as you fall asleep tonight. Did you remember to lock your back door? My favorite case of quasi-legal wanderlust is the disappearance and possible reappearance of one Patrick McDermott, a con man who may have faked his own death to get out of debt and to avoid child support payments. McDermott was a cameraman working in commercials when he met Olivia Newton-John. Yes, that Olivia Newton-John. Sandy from Greece. Anyway, McDermott was the one she apparently wanted on hot summer nights. She once called him the most romantic man she'd ever met. On June 30th, 2005, McDermott boarded a charter boat in the San Pedro Marina in Los Angeles for an overnight fishing trip with 22 other passengers. He never returned. On the way back to port, he he just disappeared. The Coast Guard conducted an investigation and determined that McDermott likely drowned after falling off the boat. But given McDermott's reputation as a liar and mooch, and the fact that nobody on the small boat heard him fall over, some investigators suspected he faked his death. Enter John J. Nazarian. If you're a Hollywood star and you find yourself in a bind, you call Nazarian. He's been in the biz for decades, working for Sinatra, Vin Diesel, and Les Moonves. Guy charges $600 an hour and drives a Bentley. So Nazarian goes searching for McDermott, and it seems he got close in Mexico, where he discovered McDermott's name carved into a wood plank at a restaurant. He believes McDermott simply walked away from the boat when he got to port and moved to Mexico. He might not have intended for people to believe he'd fallen off and drowned. And there's nothing illegal about a man ghosting his girlfriend, even if it is Sandy from Greece. And then Dateline got involved. The show got its own private eyes who built a website called findpatrickmcdermott.com, which they used to track IP addresses of anyone logging onto the site. Right away, they saw that someone in Puerto Vallarta was particularly interested in their website. The investigators traveled there, where they claimed to find McDermott living under his birth name, Pat Kim. Just last year, an investigator with the hard-hitting journalism magazine, Woman's Day, claimed that McDermott was alive and well living in Sayulita, Mexico with his new girlfriend. Meanwhile, McDermott's ex-wife still claims he's very much dead, though she may be motivated by a life insurance policy. A crazy case, right? But if McDermott could get away with it, what about people with unlimited resources at their disposal? Get your tinfoil hats on and let's talk about Ken Lay. In case you didn't know, Ken Lay was the founder and CEO of a company called Enron, which started as a natural gas company and grew into a huge energy trading business worth $68 bazillion. Lay himself was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He was the co-chairman of George Bush Sr.'s re-election campaign in 1992. Lay was absurdly rich and connected to the most powerful people on the planet, number five on the Forbes 500. He was also a damned dirty liar. He was cooking the books at Enron, hiding big losses, and he got caught and everything fell apart in 2000. The company went bankrupt. Thousands of people lost their life savings. Lay was indicted for securities fraud. He was found guilty in 2006 and was facing 45 years in prison. 
For a 64-year-old, this was a death sentence. While awaiting sentencing, Lay traveled to Colorado on vacation and never returned. His family said he died of a heart attack and cremated his body. People lost their damned minds. Lay was a symbol of corporate greed and we were denied justice. Were we really to believe he just died like a king in some ancient play, off stage where nobody could witness it? Conspiracy theories started immediately and continue to this day, with people claiming to have bumped into him on a beach in the Caribbean. Bunk, right? Ridiculous. Probably, yes. But if anybody could pull it off, Ken Lay was the man. And then there's the stories of celebrities who hated fame and faked their deaths so that they could enjoy a private, peaceful life. Elvis, Jim Morrison, Tupac. My editor at the Free Times, Frank Lewis, believed that Andy Kaufman faked his death. He thought that Andy Kaufman might actually be the costumed bear in that kid's show, Bear in the Big Blue House. But is it really possible? How hard would it be to disappear in the digital age? Well, in 2009, journalist Evan Ratliff attempted to find out. Ratliff is a gonzo journalist. Do you know what that means? It's when a journalist disregards objectivity in their writing, often making themselves part of the story. I could make a compelling case about how there's no real objectivity in journalism anyway, and never has been, and it's better to be clear about your position than try to hide it, but that's probably a topic for later. Hunter S. Thompson was a gonzo journalist. Suffice to say, it's the fun stuff. Anyway, Ratliff wrote an article for Wired in August of 2009 called Gone Forever about people who successfully faked their death and started a new life. At the top was the story of a typical Midwestern dad who got into debt, stole from the company credit card to hide it, and began to spiral out of control. This dude took his family to the Ozarks, and then, as his wife watched, jumped into the river and pretended to drown. She called 911. By the time the police responded, he was gone, and his wife feared the worst. His plan seems to have been to hide out in Mexico long enough for his family to collect on his life insurance, but it all went to hell the moment he used his company BlackBerry after his presumed demise. The makings of a good Coen Brothers movie, perhaps. But Ratliff got to thinking, could he do it any better? He bet his editor he could. His bravado escalated quickly from there, and soon the terms were set. He would go on the lam for a month. He would make his financial and social media information public for anyone interested in tracking him down. If anybody caught him, they would get a $5,000 reward. But if Ratliff wasn't caught, he'd pocket $3,000 for himself. At the very least, it would make for a good piece of writing. There's a link to the Wired article in this episode's description, and I implore you to read the whole thing because it's pretty great. The whole thing is a lark, and Ratliff did not fuck around. He was serious about not getting caught and did almost everything right. He changed his appearance, growing a beard and even shaving his head by the end. He sold his car for cash and bought gift cards to purchase airline tickets. He stayed at hotels that accepted money orders. In a stroke of genius, he rented a small office in Las Vegas and set up computers there that he could dial into remotely so anyone searching for his online fingerprint would end up in Sin City. But nobody expected how much the hunt would appeal to armchair sleuths. 
that came from all over the United States and traded tips and clues on Facebook and Twitter. These citizen detectives delved into all aspects of Ratliff's life, going so far to track down his pet sitter. One was particularly good at monitoring the IP addresses of visitors to Facebook pages dedicated to the mystery. Ratliff was a real-life Carmen Sandiego, and in a couple weeks, he had a hundred avid hunters on his tail. With just seven days to go, Ratliff got cocky. His editor dared him to go to a book reading for an extra $400. He happened to be in New Orleans at the time, and when he arrived at the Garden District bookshop, two sleuths were waiting for him. The article is fascinating because it shows that it's possible to disappear in this age, but it requires tenacity and determination. You always have to be looking over your shoulder, but acting like you're not. It can't be a fun life. Eventually, you get bored or lazy and you take risks, and and that's what gets you. There's also the loneliness inherent in this misadventure. You can't be yourself, literally. You can't be you, not with anyone. Not unless you want to get caught. And what kind of life is that? If you think about it, running away is always a fruitless adventure. And maybe it's a moot point to even discuss whether it's possible. Because what are we really running away from? Evan Ratliff, Patrick McDermott, John List, Moore Murray. They were all running from themselves. The trouble only existed because of who they were, who they are, their identity. And that's maybe the one thing you can never really escape, no matter how hard you try. Because as my old man is fond of saying, no matter where you go, there you are. What I want to explore with you is this idea of identity. I wonder if you know what it means, or if you've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I discovered this guy, Alan Watts, and I want to tell you about him because what he has to say about identity changed my life even though he died before I was born. And I think if you're really contemplating a disappearance, listening to Alan Watts might change your mind. Philosophers have pondered identity ever since philosophy was invented. It's one of the very big questions. Who am I? Am I this body, this crude matter? Or am I a spark of some magical unseen consciousness within? And if so, Where is the real me located? Where is fancy bread? In the heart or in the head? If I could transplant my brain, would I still be me inside another person's body? If I could copy me, like in some Star Trek transporter accident, if I could copy each neuron in my brain, saving every memory and experience along with every cell in my body, would I somehow be both me and the copy of me? Of course not, that's ridiculous, but but why? And if my identity really is tied to my physical properties, am I the same me as I have been all my life? I feel like I am, but every single cell in my body has been replaced over the years. It's like that famous philosophical paradox, right? The, the ship of Theseus? Remember that the ship of Theseus was repaired over the years, and each plank was eventually replaced by a new plank. No piece of it was the same after 30 years, but... It was still called the ship of Theseus. We're all the ship of Theseus. I'm 42 now. My opinions, my perceptions, my hopes and dreams, they're all different from what they were when I was 10. As different as if I were another person. When I was 10, my identity was a son, a child, a fifth grader. 
At 42, my identity is a father, an adult, a writer. It's a new identity. So when did it change? How often does it change? Is my identity the same today as it was just yesterday? If not, what the hell, man? Who am I? Plato believed that we all have a soul, and that our soul is who we really are. But there's no direct evidence of this. Are we supposed to take it on faith? If I have a soul, where is it? Does it exist in a different dimension or something? Is it maybe just an illusion? The Scottish philosopher David Hume considered a new theory of identity 300 years ago. In his words, the mind itself, far from being an independent power, is simply a bundle of perceptions without unity or cohesive quality. Hume noticed that when he turned his thoughts inward and tried to locate his identity, he found nothing permanent. He said, For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception, and never can observe anything but the perception. I think of it like this. Picture a beautiful shiny marble. Now picture a vast Rube Goldberg machine. You know what those are, right? Like a giant contraption in which the marble rolls, setting off little trip wires, sending dominoes, crashing down tiny steps, rolling into different traps. Our brains are like those Rube Goldberg machines. Our experiences and memories have become little pieces of that machine. The funnel the marble rolls around in. The little fan it sets to turning. I believe what we are, our true identity, is not the marble itself, but the movement of the marble, its speed and direction, ever-changing and not really in control of itself when you step back and see the whole works. Take a moment and try to find yourself. Look inward. Search for yourself. What do you find? An assortment of disparate thoughts and concerns, probably. That ever-running inner commentary that Buddhist monks call the monkey mind. I can't forget to pick up the dry cleaning. There are still three more hours until I'm done with work. I have to study for school. I hate that dress that Melanie wore yesterday. What will I eat for supper? Did I turn the iron off? I think I'm falling in love. I can't believe Tony said that to my face. I want to strangle him. That bump on my neck. Is it cancer? Where is your identity in that cloud of anxiety and memory? Becoming aware of those thoughts is called mindfulness. And it's the first step toward inner peace. I don't know if you've noticed, but we are at this moment in the middle of a mindfulness renaissance. Buddhism is cool again. Meditation is cool again. We have an app for enlightenment. It doesn't take a genius to recognize that our sudden interest in inner peace comes at a time when we're stuck with a petty despot of a president who taunts world leaders with threats of nuclear war. The only way we can stay sane is by finding a way to remain calm, to be zen. You can thank Alan Watts for that. He brought zen to America. Watts was born in 1915 in the country outside London. His father was a businessman, and his mother came from a very religious family. She had inherited a number of paintings from the Far East, which hung around the house and fascinated the young Watts. When he was eight, he got a bad fever and had a vision. He found himself face down on a large steel ball that was spinning around the earth. 
He knew that he would spin around on this ball forever, and there was nothing he could do to escape it, and so the only thing he could do was to give in, to give up control. And in that moment, the ball hit a mountain and disintegrated. At the age of 16, Watts got very involved with a Buddhist temple in London and began to practice different forms of meditation. He came to the United States as a young man to study the art of Zen, the practice of Chinese Buddhism, where they sit in the lotus position and meditate, focusing on breathing and awareness of maintaining the one without wavering. Eventually, Watts made his way to California. In 1953, he began to host a radio show at KPFA in Berkeley. He never got paid for it, but the station continued to broadcast his show, his own personal philosophy lessons, until 1962, at which time the station reran old episodes. We're talking about the epicenter of the hippie movement. Watts was an influence on everyone who passed through that area, whispering in their ears through the radio. People like Timothy Leary, Joan Didion, Hunter S. Thompson, even Charles Manson. Author Robert Persig passed through San Francisco when Watts was on the radio and was inspired to write Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Watts enjoyed psychedelic drugs but did not use them habitually. He considered LSD and marijuana tools that he could use to sometimes open his mind. If you get the message, hang up the phone, he said. Psychedelic drugs are simply instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. The biologist does not sit with his eye permanently glued to the microscope. He goes away and works on what he's seen. He did, however, fall into the bottle later in life and never really climbed out. He died in his sleep at the age of 58. Alan Watts has been dead for 47 years, and yet his words still echo around, inspiring others. And that's very fitting because he had a big idea about identity. What Watts believed was that we're all it. We are all everything. Our true identity is the universe itself. God himself. Here's what he said. Each of you is the universe expressed in the place which you feel is here and now. You're an aperture through which the universe is looking at itself, exploring itself. So when you feel that you are a lonely, put-upon, isolated little stranger confronting all this, see, you have an illusory feeling. Because the truth is the reverse. You're the whole works that there is, that always was and always has been, always will be. Just as the eyes serve the whole body and help it to find its way around, so you are, as it were, serving the whole universe. And it's exploring itself. And therefore... If this is so, these facts do not fit the way we feel, because we feel it the other way around. I'm a little lonely thing exploring all this universe and trying to make something out of it, get something out of it, do something with it. And I know I'm going to fail, because I know I'm going to die one day. So we're all fundamentally depressed and think of all these fantasies about what's going to happen to us when we're dead, and all that kind of thing. He goes on, What do you mean by you? If you are the universe... In the greater context, that question is irrelevant. You never were born, you, you never will die, because what there is, is you. That should be absolutely obvious, but it is not obvious at all. That should be the simplest thing in the world to understand that you, the I, is what has always been going on, and always will go on. We've been bamboozled by religions, 
by politicians, by fathers and mothers, by all sorts of people to tell us, you're not it. And we believed it. So do you see now why, if I put it to you in this very negative way, you can't do anything to change yourselves, to become better, to become happier, to become more serene, to become mystics or anything? If I say, you can't do a damn thing, can you really understand this negative statement in a positive way? What I'm really saying is that you don't need to. Because if you see yourself in the correct way, you're all as much extraordinary phenomenon of nature as, as trees and clouds, the pattern in running water, the shape of fire, the arrangement of stars, the form of a galaxy. You're all just like that. There's nothing wrong with you at all. End quote. My father said the same thing in a different way. No matter where you go, there you are. One of the places I visited in Canada during my search for Maura Murray was the small record store in Quebec City. An employee there tried to tell us something, but she only spoke French and it was hard to understand her. When I returned, I received an email from her, which a co-worker had helped to translate. She thought Maura Murray had come into her store. I saw if it's her on Monday, December 2nd, 2013, she wrote. She asked for live music. She was on a bike in snow. The woman she saw was strikingly similar to the photographs of Maura Murray on the internet. She spoke only English and was not staying in the city for long. The woman was so sure that it was Maura, she reported it to police. At the time, I thought the sightings in Canada were interesting, mostly because they were so concentrated around Montreal and Quebec City. If they were simple hoaxes, I'd have thought the distribution of sightings would be more widespread, but I couldn't find a good reason for Maura to want to go into hiding at that time. She'd gotten into trouble for credit card fraud and identity theft, but it wasn't anything she couldn't handle and have expunged. Why disappear? Around this time, I was contacted by a woman who spoke to me on deep background. She told me that she worked for an underground network of volunteers and counselors who helped victims of domestic abuse change their names and disappear. I did some digging, and what she told me checked out. There are, in fact, a couple organizations in New England that do this sort of thing, operating as a somewhat illegal witness protection program. This woman believed Moore used one of these groups to get a new name and social security number. A couple years later, I was contacted by co-workers of Bill Rausch, Maura Murray's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. They told me a story about how he had sexually assaulted a woman in the office where he worked in D.C. After I posted the story online, several other women came forward. To date, six women have claimed Bill is guilty of everything from sexual harassment to attempted rape. In late 2019, a D.C. judge granted a protection order to Bill's girlfriend, who claimed he often choked her and called her Mora during sex. Now, couple that with what the lead detective in Mora's case told me, that he believed Mora was pregnant when she disappeared. And now, folks, we have motive for Mora to run away and never look back. I hope she did. Man, I hope she did. Is it possible to disappear and start a new life in 2020? Sure. If you have the proper motivation and if you're determined to keep up the charade for the rest of your life. But deep down, the one person you can never fool is yourself. Whether you change your identity every day 
whether you're just God looking back on himself, whether it's all just an illusion, you will never again be at peace. And that's as close a thing to hell as I can imagine. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time, remember there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.